Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It bursts into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's rising. And it's rising. It's rising. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's frightening. Plenty. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the flame is rising to the ground. Not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the planets is beaming around it. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. His friends are out there. It's, 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 uh, oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just laying down massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I can't. I, listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I have lots of voices. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Richard, on May 6, 1927, in Manchester Township, New Jersey, as the German commercial Zeppelin Hindenburg was preparing to land, 31-year-old Herbert Morrison was recording a commentary onto an acetate disc for WLS Radio in Chicago. His recording was malfunctioning and the sound was distorted, but he captured some of the most famous audio of the era. That was the real-life Hindenburg disaster, and the 1975 movie The Hindenburg is one of the films we'll be discussing discussing today on the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. A little bit of a downer maybe to start the episode with that, but I just felt the historical significance was something we can't ignore and should address. No, absolutely. Uh, happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> this episode a little different. In that sense, is that we're getting to some historical stuff, which we typically don't. I'm not even sure if we really have done like historical, maybe, I don't know. Not historical, probably, but not like real life historical. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. This is probably the closest we'll get to the being the History Channel. We started off this year with our disaster episode. Gosh, before the end of the year, we decided we're going to end it the way we started it. Two very different films. Two well, very- surely, though, with the potentially downbeat nature of that first film, certainly we balanced it with a lighter, more fun movie, correct? Absolutely. We're going to blow up the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> the other film is definitely very different in regards to the disaster flicks. And we're talking about Black Sunday, not the old 1960s Black Sunday. We're talking Black Sunday from 1977. However, if you watch this on Paramount Plus, how I did, when you pull up Black Sunday, they actually have the 1960 image as the the poster image. The disaster part is definitely downplayed in this one, but once it comes about, I mean, it is it's it's a, it's a different take on disaster flicks. 
I do just want to mention, if I may shamelessly plug, it's Disaster December on my two different blogs. I'm doing it for both ClassicHorrors.club and Codex Omniversa. Richard's going to participate and help me out in a little bit of the writing chores. I just woke up and had the idea uh, of making a whole month of it. I got the Irwin Allen box set from Shout Factory, and so it's going to be mostly focused on Irwin Allen. I do want to mention a couple of resources that I use, am using this month and will be using today. First is, well, they're all books, but first is Disaster Movies by Glenn Kay and Michael Rose. It is a sort of A to Z full length three page reviews or so of specific disaster movies. A book I got in 75, so it does not even feature a lot of the disaster movies, but it's called Catastrophe, the End of the Cinema. And then finally, The Stewardess is Flying the Plane, American Films of the 1970s by Ron Hogan. Not specifically disaster movies, but I will tell you, Black Sunday was not in either of the two books, but it is featured in The Stewardess is Flying the Plane. So they're all great books with lots of pictures and Another reason I got excited about this was getting to flip through those again. Well, I'm eager to get talking about those. Why don't we move in? Well, let's open the meeting, first of all. And let's move into some old business. Not a lot of old business. However, a lot of Facebook group page members again this month, which is wonderful. Let's do a roll call. Rich, you want to start out? Yes, we give a hearty welcome to Sharon Seagroves Williams, Joseph R. Portugallo, Doug Herdlick, R.J. Gallantine, Bob Massey, Stephen E. Vale, Chloe Engelhard, Mark Levine, Ron Stebko, Matthew Harrison, David Walker, Harley Hoffman, Bobby Smith. I do apologize if I spoke any of those wrong. Uh, The notes app I'm using is atrocious with trying to spell check. And I have a feeling I might have misspoke on uh, at least one person's name. So I apologize. But welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining the Facebook group page and participating in the fun over there. Welcome, one and all. Richard, you want to shout out to your personal people that you usually greet, and I'll do mine second this time. I'll tell you why in a minute. Yes, a special shout out to my daughter, Kayla, who continues to work her way through the Instagram stuff. Thank you, Kayla, for taking that on. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Carla, who continues to sit. She watched both of these films eagerly. She loves the disaster flicks. You know, she was excited that we were doing this after the Nashi month, which she was not a participant of. And I, as you know, if you've been listening, usually shout out to my mother and my brother, Jay, who normally listen on expeditions around Sacramento, California. So I want to shout out, but this takes us into our feedback because my brother did leave some feedback. Now he had stopped, has not listened in a while because he was listening to our episode with Ansel Farage about the other and was so intrigued he didn't want any spoilers, so he stopped it. He finally got around to watching it last night and provided this feedback. So I suppose now I can listen to the rest of the episode about The Other, but I don't believe you and Richard warned your audience that the entire first 45 minutes of that movie is an obnoxious kid running around in khaki shorts loudly annoying everybody. 
And then the viewer's reward for enduring that torture is watching a nonsensical inhabitants of a crow and witnessing infanticide. No, thank you. <laughs> we welcome all opinions here on the Classic Horrors Club podcast, right or wrong. I do believe we talked about the boy running around and he may have not gotten that that far into the episode yet because that is something we talked about how that that wore me out. There was a lot of energy in that kid, but I still dearly love this movie and I'm sorry he didn't enjoy it. Did you like it, Jay? Or <laughs> I'm a little confused. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Hello, Jay. And hello, Jeff's mom out there in California land. Let's balance that with uh, some good feedback, not specifically to our show, but on our YouTube channel. And if you all have forgotten, we do have a YouTube channel at Classic Horrors TV. We do a video companion to this podcast, as well as post trailers and other little fun things that Rich and I come up with. This user, I don't know their true identity. It is the letter I and then KD. This person said, I love Paul Nashy films. Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman is one of my favorites and the movie that got me into his flicks. Other favorites of his are Dr. Jekyll versus the Werewolf, Assignment Terror, parentheses Dracula versus Frankenstein, and Walk of the Dead from 1972. His flicks are a lot of fun. Thank you very much, IKD. I am not familiar with Walk of the Dead. I wonder if that's an alternate name for one of his films. Do you have any idea? I'm drawing a blank on that one. We appreciate this feedback through different methods. There is also a very simple way that everyone can participate. That is by calling our hotline, if you will, 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. Thank you, sir. You can also record a message in advance and email that to classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And as we mentioned, the Facebook group page, leave comments there. We will share some of those as well. Real quick, I want to go back to the Instagram page, which we are Classic Horrors Club podcast. We've actually got 92 followers on there now. Yeah, that's a whole nother realm that, you know, obviously we want everyone to join the Facebook group page because that's where we interact a little bit. Interacting on Instagram versus Facebook is, I think you can have conversations a little easier on Facebook than you can Instagram. That's just me, the old man. Mm. But we acknowledge the 92 followers we have on there. So, and, and hopefully you're listening to us. If you're following there, maybe you're not a member on, on Facebook and we understand that. So uh, a welcome to everyone who's following us over there as well. Well, let's go ahead and do this since you brought that up. We were talking earlier and we both have ways to interact with everybody that I don't take advantage of. For example, my personal blog page has followers and they may be some of you. They may not. They may be just people that read, but I seldom acknowledge them. And that's something I just need to work on on my own. But I had forgotten, Rich, you also have actually a way people can interact with you. Right. I also, on my blog, I have people that follow me there and will leave comments, especially during the countdown to Halloween. I was getting a lot of comments and I respond as well. And yes, I have a Monster Movie Kid Facebook group page. Every post on the blog, which of course includes the post that I do for the podcast, gets posted there. David The Rock Nelson is a <laughs> member. 
There you go. Special shout out to all of them. Hopefully they're listening as well. You're going to get to the Classic Chorus Club podcast one way or another. I think the only thing in addition I have that you don't and Classic Horrors has is Twitter. And talk about not knowing how to respond. I do not know how to have a conversation with people on Twitter. I need a lesson. Or X, as it's now. Excuse me. Pardon me. I think you say tweet at me and let me know how I can respond to. Do you still tweet if it's X now? Mm. Or are you... Or are I, you supposed to? Like, you know, I don't know. I, it's never going to be X for me. It's Twitter. So, well, yeah. Just, uh, and also, Rich, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the the news and tell everybody now. Coming in 2024, we will have a TikTok channel featuring the vocal stylings of Mr. Richard Chamberlain. For the first time in TikTok history, a member will have negative followers. So <laughs> it'll be history in the making. Let's get on with the show, as they say. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk about our first movie. We're doing them not in chronological order. first movie up will be Black Sunday from 1977. People of America, this situation is unbearable for us until you understand that and stop helping the Israelis with arms and money. We of the Black September movement will make it unbearable for you. Today's horror is nothing to what will happen unless your government acts now. We have begun the year for you with bloodshed. If you do not help me, you may have on your hands the blood of a great many innocent Americans. Just a minute, sweetie. I'm getting something for you. Her name is Dahlia Iyad, of Arab German extraction. Black September joined in 1973. Here is her face. Look at it. You know, for 30 years I have been killing and murdering. What have I achieved? Same world, same wars, same enemies, same friends, and same victims. I am your superior in the organization and you will obey orders. You may be my superior in the organization, but you are not a woman. I love you. We found Dahlia Iyad. You sure? Positively identified in a Miami hotel last night. The day we set the big one off, we're only going to be 100 feet off the ground, right over the 50-yard line. Now look at this. That means 222,000 darts in the kill zone for 80,000 people. Championship of professional football. What exactly is this Super Bowl? Are you out of your mind? Pat Summerall with Tom Brookshire. Tom, you can feel the pressure building up all week. So here we go. Super Bowl is underway. My God, here it comes. Stadium, Corley to Stadium. 
Signal red alert. Get the president out of the stadium. January 18, 1976, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Cowboys played in Super Bowl X at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Two months earlier, the FBI discovered a recording in Beirut, meant to be released after the game that indicated the Palestinian terrorist group Black September would execute a terrorist attack. Counterterrorist agent David Kabakov works with FBI agent Sam Corley to identify the nature of the threat and prevent it. Meanwhile, the key to success of the plot is held in the hands of Michael Lander, a mentally unstable Vietnam War veteran. Black Sunday was written by Ernest Lehman and Kenneth Ross and Ivan Moffat, based on the novel by Thomas Harris, directed by John Frankenheimer, was produced by the Robert Evans Company and was released by Paramount Pictures on April 1st, 1977, it has a running time of 143 minutes. Richard, is this your first time watch? I think you said no, right? No, it is. First time oh, watch. Oh, both they both these. are, right? Yes, both of these oh. films. I've been aware of them probably since the 1970s. I've never taken the time to watch them. Well, then what was your first impression? How did you like it? I really enjoyed it. It is definitely light on the disaster as far as disaster epics go and as i think you mentioned i mean black sunday might not even be on every disaster list it is definitely a thriller it's elements of mystery involved it's a little bit spy thriller and then there's the disaster epic portion of it and i almost think there's a little bit of horror elements clearly thrown in, in regards to the fact that you've got the disturbed character of Lander. He's unhinged. And <laughs> when he's doing like the test in that barn sequence and how thrilled he is when he sees the damage that it does, that's, that's a horror element there. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. This movie touches upon a lot of different genres while not necessarily staying firm in any one specific genre, but I thoroughly enjoyed it, in large part because of Bruce Dern. I've loved Bruce Dern ever since I watched The Big Valley when I was a kid. He he was in five episodes of The Big Valley, played a nut job in every episode. He's a very unique actor in the way he approaches the characters. They're always, there's nothing average about his performances. He's disturbed in this film, and Got to think, 1977, we're in that Vietnam War veteran era, late 70s, 80s, 
when that was featured in in a lot of films, Chuck Norris missing in action films and the apocalypse now and stuff. I mean, there was a lot of a focus on the damage that was done to a lot of individuals. The Vietnam War was a very unique and different war. Plus the fact that Robert Shaw puts in a great performance. There's a good chase scene. There's some good suspense throughout the film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did too. I have seen both of these movies back probably when they first came out and haven't really seen them since then. I knew the big set piece of this was the Goodyear blimp coming up over the Orange Bowl in Miami. But yet, I believe I got components of this mixed up with another, not disaster movie, but thriller at the Super Bowl that came out a year before, Two Minute Warning, which was about a sniper that was in the Super Bowl. No snipers in this. They're shooting, but that's not part of the main plot. I do want to address the genre. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I watched this on the Arrow video Blu-ray. And there's a booklet that comes in it, like a lot of movies. And I just want to read what this author, Barry Forshaw, said. The image, the one I talked about, the may suggest that Black Sunday is an entry in the massively popular disaster movie trend of the 70s. To some degree, the film's finale does indeed place it firmly in that category. There are the bone-crushing encounters of the football players on the field, the audience packed into the stands, the arrival of the president, despite Secret Service advice that he should watch the game on TV, security agents nervously prowling the grounds, aware that a catastrophe is in the offing, a catastrophe that they cannot yet identify, and in the sky, a man and woman hoping to bring about the deaths of 80,000 people to further their political ends. However, the rest of the film is no mere setup for this climax, instead documenting the documenting the tease and I need my glasses, apparently. Uh, It talks about how the beginning is really the political thriller, like you mentioned, really setting up what is going to happen. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, the last 36 minutes of this film is a disaster movie. Everything before that is the setup for it, which on its own is a very tense, exciting political thriller. Any mention of even the Super Bowl does not happen until an hour and a half into the movie. So we are sort of with the agents and the FBI trying to figure out what's going to happen. I mean, we know, but on one level, we're sort of in the dark, too, about what's going to happen. And I don't think we really ever know specifically how they plan. I thought there was a Super Bowl reference in the beginning. There was a scene in Los Angeles with the team play with the Los Angeles Rams playing to introduce Bruce Stern as the pilot of the Goodyear blimp, yeah. but there was no mention of the Super Bowl. When we get to the Hindenburg, we're going to rattle off a list of tropes from 70s disaster movies. There are many, many in that. This movie, you can probably shove some of those into that last 36 minutes. For example, uh, one of the tropes of a disaster movie is multiple lives are in danger. Well, certainly they are. There's a threat beyond their control. Well, Yes and no. They certainly can't control the Goodyear blimp coming in, but the people who are aware of it could stop it. I don't believe you can stop a flood or a hurricane. This is kind of a mystery, too. They don't really know what the threat's going to be, so a large large part of the movie is them trying to figure that out. There are elements about characters being warned or not believing that there's going to be something coming up. The president told, hey, stay home and watch it on TV. Nope, he's not going to do that. Also, 
early when they don't know what's going to happen, Robert Shaw suggests that they cancel the Super Bowl. And of course, no one will do that. And I think it's easily understandable why that won't happen. So there's some little purposeful, like ignoring the threat that happens in a lot of disaster movies. Disaster movies usually have a confrontation between two characters, a big dramatic. There's not really that. However, there's an eye contact between the good guy and the woman in their respective flying vehicles before shots are fired. And they pause a little and there's an intense reaction. And I want to talk more about that later. So there is sort of that death of the people that deserve it. Certainly, we get that here. And then there's not really a daring rescue of anyone, but there is a daring attempt to stop. Finally, in disaster movies, the characters sometimes suffer from some type of mental handicap or fear, a phobia, perhaps. Like if if you were at the Super Bowl and you had a fear of the Goodyear blimp, this was not a good day for you. But that wasn't here, however... Bruce Dern certainly has the middle handicap of a screw being loose. And I think that's the technical term for that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's got components of a disaster film. I think overall, I don't really consider it that. I don't care. It's a great movie. It has disaster elements. We're going to talk about it. Disaster flicks are certainly on the fringe of our wheelhouse anyway. At the end of the day, it's our podcast and we can do what we want. So. Yeah, and I'll defend that. Endlessly, because what is more horrific than the things that happen to these people in these movies? I've long said the horror wheelhouse is very large. You've got things that are on the fringe, and sometimes those things on the fringe can be more terrifying because maybe they touch more on the real world. I'm fairly certain I'm not going to be attacked by the Frankenstein monster at any point, but... If I'm in a large crowd anymore, unfortunately, it's a thing that I think about even going to the movies or wherever. I mean, it's just you never know anymore when stuff's going to happen. In the big scheme of things, yes, there's millions of, of, if we're sticking with football, how many games happen in just a given week and nothing at all happens at them. But it only takes that one to make you think, well, gosh, I really need to be prepared. I need to think about, it's just the world we live in, whether it's good or bad, it is what it is. There's elements in this film, and we'll talk about it, that you're never going to see the NFL featured in a movie like this again. You're never going to see the Goodyear blimp specifically featured in a movie like this again. If you were to take Black Sunday and to redo it, And you obviously easily could, because sadly, what are we talking about? We're talking about terrorism. We're talking about Palestinian terrorist groups. It's 2023, folks, and there's a war happening right now in the Middle East involving Israel and the Palestinians and the terrorist groups. And what was happening in 77 is happening in 2023. And a totally lighthearted note, I had a Goodyear blimp as a kid, an automated one, and you could type messages like it was like a you had these little sheets on the inside and you use little colors to circle in the dots and create your own message turn on the switch and then it would light up and it would rotate and just like a regular blimp and it was probably a foot long it was heavy because it had this whole motorized mechanism in it had a little stand that it was on i wish i still had it i long since got rid of it I couldn't help but not think about that repeatedly as we were watching this movie. I was like, I want my blimp back when I was a kid. Not only did the NFL allow them to use footage, and this 
is one of the most impressive things. And I didn't realize till after, and I did research and I was texting my friend Lisa, who's a big Dallas fan. That was really the Super Bowl. Yeah. Real footage. So I think the MVP, if you will, since we're using that analogy, here is the editor of the film, Tom Rolfe, because it is seamless. Obviously, there were scenes filmed at the Orange Bowl, but after the game. Yeah. But to meld them together, which to me, it, you just you can't tell. And that whole 36 minutes, it's almost real time, but it's I've talked before about how real time sometimes doesn't work because real time really isn't exciting. But it is a, a manufactured version of real time where there's constant switching back from the action of the game to them pursuing the villains to trying to stop the blimp. And it's ba- very short scenes intercut and and going back and forth. The, so the editor, I think, was amazing. Now, I know you're going to do cast and crew. I don't really know if you will talk much about Tom Roth. So I wanted to oh. take a minute and say Proceed. that he would be known for movies like French Connection 2, Taxi Driver, you know, very successful, well-known movies. He won an Oscar in 1984 for The Right Stuff. You're going to be proud of me, Rich. He did editing for 10 episodes of The Big Valley. Ah. But you know what his first project was? And this is just going to, this tickles me to know. Invasion of the Animal People. I really want to give him credit. And we're going to talk about this a lot in the Hindenburg 2. The special effects are amazing. And this is not to the extent of the Hindenburg, but... There were scenes where they used a dummy nose of the the blimp coming up over. I think the footage was real of the blimp flying, but incredible. I think it did really well for what technology they had at the time. This is a film that on the test screenings, it was off the charts. It had some of the highest numbers that had ever been given for a Paramount test screening. It was poised and projected to be just as big as Jaws. It's released on April 1st, 1977, and a little film came out less than two months later called Star Wars that changed the landscape. And Black Sunday got lost in the shuffle. It didn't get necessarily the praise that it was anticipated that it was going to get. Because now all the attention was on Star Wars. And Star Wars, for better or worse, changed everything in regards to what made a Hollywood movie successful. This is a case where a non-science fiction film suffered from the arrival of Star Wars. Now, Star Wars fans are going to say, well, you know, who cares? Because Star Wars. and But still, a film like Black Sunday, if it would have been released a year earlier would probably be a little more fondly remembered. One other note on the special effects. Today, credits last a third of the length of the film. There used to be a day when there were very rare credits. You know, the end and that was it. This is sort of in the middle. There's a few credits. And this one cracked me up. I don't know if you noticed. Special effects man. Didn't get his name, but really one person did the special (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I just thought that was so funny. I've never seen that before. Special effects man. Yeah. Now, of course, there's a list of 10,000 people that might have done five seconds of film, maybe, or maybe they consulted somebody and they get their credit. Special effects man. I'm sure he had a crew. 
whatever he his specific job duty was. That's kind of funny. Yeah. And even what is their definition of man? Was he the leader of the crew? Did, was he the mascot? You know, I don't know what that means. <laughs> But, no, well, yeah, the, the budget was low. So they had one guy who's like, look, we need to blow up a blimp and we need to crash the Super Bowl. You're in charge of everything. Go. That wouldn't have worked. And then before we get too much further, I do want to address the elephant in the room. I don't know if you saw this. You probably did. I hope I'm not spoiling. Christy McNichol was in this movie, but her scenes were cut. Yes. That is the biggest disaster of this movie. <laughs> I knew. Now, and I tried and tried to find out what role did she play. You pl- I did too. As her feature film debut was okay. going to be this film. And then ultimately when her scenes were cut, then her feature film debut came the following year in the end with Burt yes. Reynolds and Sally Field. What could she have played? And I do want to in a minute run through some of the differences between the book and the movie. But in the book, Bruce Stern had a girlfriend. First, I thought, oh, that was Christy McNichol. Well, maybe he's mentally unstable, but I think she still would be a little too young to be his girlfriend. I'm wondering if maybe because he had children, right? Oh, that's true. Maybe one of his daughters. One of his daughters because her age, she would have been young. Because I'm trying to think, when did family start? On ABC. I think it was before 77. I I was thinking 75. I thought 75, 76. She was young on the cusp of of some of the the teen films that she was going to be doing. I'm thinking that'd be the only way that I could think that she'd fit in would be maybe there was a scene with his ex-wife and children. Maybe she was one of the kids or something, you know, or maybe he was on the phone with her or something. I I don't know. Probably not a big scene and probably quite honestly, best left on the cutting. Yeah, I can't board. imagine any time for Bruce Stern to interact with his family. He tells his counselor or whoever about them, maybe a flashback. I don't know. Well, I'm thinking if you would have shown the daughter, if you would have seen him be compassionate towards her, then you start to feel sympathy towards him. And that's not what you want to feel towards Lander because he's unhinged. I can't imagine, though, that he would have been unhinged towards his daughter. But, I mean, if he would have, that would have almost enhanced his evilness, right? I mean, that would have made him like, not only is he blowing people up, and, and there's obviously children in that crowd. He doesn't even think about that, doesn't care about that. It's all about getting revenge on, essentially, the government, mostly. for. But then, of course, this anger towards his wife. And I can sort I, of picture it now. Christy McNichol, at least at that time, to me was known for just the tears being able to just come at the snap of the finger. I can see her standing on a doorstep crying as he drove away or something like that. It it would add sympathy, you're right, but it also demonstrates what was taken away from him and why he's... That's a good so point. Angry. Yeah. I, I don't mean, know. It could have added a measure of humanity to him. We do get a little bit... <laughs> the scene where he's meeting with the, the caseworker, I guess, is funny in a dark way. We got William Daniels playing the caseworker, Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World, which is probably the thing. I sadly, I know him from other things. I was saying elsewhere, right? He wasn't saying yep. elsewhere. I think my kids watch Boy Meets World for a while. So yeah, Mr. Feeney. But he's so not engaged in that scene. I was gonna say, how can you not know that man man across your desk is he, yeah, and, and he knows nothing and everything he's mentioning, wrong, wrong, wrong. Brewster the whole time. 
I'm thinking he is going to jump across that desk and just beat this guy to a pulp. Finally, he says, well, you know, didn't keep good notes and taking on somebody else's case. Like, dude, you're a total ass clown and you're part of the problem. You're not helping him. You're making matters worse. Not to mention he had been waiting. And that was the scene that got me and was suspenseful for me. Here you are planning a terrorist attack and you've got to go have an appointment with your caseworker. And they tell him to take a number. (laughs) And he has sort of a little interaction. Then he sits and he's the very last person. And he's sitting there, you know, sweat going down his face that I think he kind of wipes away. I thought he was going to explode in there in the way. Well, (laughs) yeah. And then the lady behind the desk. uh, Oh, gosh. Yeah, she needed smacked. Yeah, she is in the wrong business and the wrong job. Or she's been in it too long and it's time to move on to something else. Yeah. It shows you that. This is a guy who's hanging on by a thread, and then he's having to deal with these real-world people that we all deal with. You got to go somewhere. Here, take a number, and you've got number 100, and and then you've got the sloth working behind the desk. Two, (laughs) number two. (laughs) And you're like, I'm going to be here all day long. Recently just went to the driver's license thing last month to get my new driver's license, and thankfully, that used to be the dead end. Mark off the whole day. Thankfully, the pandemic has made that process incredibly smooth. You sign up for an appointment, you get there, and there's only a couple people ahead of you at most. We were in and out in, I think, 30 minutes. Yeah, it was an incredibly pleasant experience (laughs) compared to the way it used to be. You're not surprised sometimes that people kind of snap because if they're hanging on by a thread and got to deal with situations like that, that's all it's going to take. I'm surprised he didn't. Kudos to him for hanging on against those two people because honestly, both of those people needed a good slap. While I'm still thinking about it, I'd like to go back to a couple of those points, difference between the book and the movie. So the book, as we mentioned, was written by Thomas Harris. I believe it was his first novel released in 1975. He is the author who created Hannibal Lecter. He wrote Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, whatever the third one is, and Hannibal Rising. Very powerful, successful writer, but he had some differences. And I think if you can say Black Sunday ends with a happy ending, his book did not. The game, the Super Bowl, was a fictitious game between Miami and Washington. It took place in New Orleans. In the book, Mohammed Faisal, who was really Dahlia's, I don't know if he was her superior. I think he was in the Black September organization. He was arrested in the book and he was tried. And we haven't even mentioned that this has a connection to the Munich. Uh, my bad history is going to show, but the, what, the Olympic Games and the and, Palestinian yeah. kidnapping of. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, he got tried for that. So for a whole different thing, he got tried in the book, it didn't end as well. Hundreds of people were killed in the explosion and in the movie, only a few. And in the book, the heroes died in the explosion. And spoiler alert, they, well, we've already mentioned they survived here. So a d- darker book that, you know, it was the 70s. I don't imagine they couldn't have made it as dark, but uh, it's a case where they didn't. They went for the, the happier ending. That was probably just a choice maybe from the director or the the screenplay writers, maybe a directive from Paramount. I do have a question for you. You know, I usually have a plot point question for you to explain to me. At the beginning, when Robert Shaw and his team raids the house where the the Mm -hmm. Black September 
and he's just shooting people left and right. He opens the bathroom door. Marta Keller is in the shower, gives her a look, shuts the door and leaves. Why did he not kill her then? I think it's maybe twofold. They kind of touch on this a little bit in the film, but they don't really point it out black and white. He knows he regrets, but he acknowledges that he's possibly... That's true. Acknowledging that maybe when he lacked humanity, that he did his job better. And now that he's, you know, at this particular later, he's a little older, that he had a moment of weakness because he, whether it was sympathy towards her, whether he felt like maybe she wasn't not knowing how dangerous she was, maybe he thinking that she was just a woman who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, not seeing her as, as a threat. I think is the reason why he didn't kill her. I don't think he really thought, well, she's a woman. She's not going to be this major terrorist player in the game. But I think maybe a few years earlier, maybe when he wasn't a little softer, yeah, maybe when he was a little harder, he probably would have killed her. You know, It's hard to imagine that with some of his actions that he, <laughs> he could consider getting soft. Well, yes. I mean. So imagine yeah. what he was like. <laughs> Yeah, I think he just had that moment, and that was a huge mistake. I guess good to have that humanity, but when you're in that line of work, unfortunately, you need to lack a measure of humanity because you're going to have to do some dark things. You're going to have to to do some things that the average person wouldn't or couldn't do. I tell you what that did for me, though, and there's another scene that I cannot remember, but at one point, I questioned if he was involved, and that was going to be a twist, that he was actually working against the FBI and the good guys and was part of the group, but that did not pay out. Could have gone that way, because then that would explain why he didn't kill her. To kill all those other people just for show to protect his... Yeah. I don't know yeah. that makes sense. Could you have pulled off the twist? Yes, but you would have had to have played it a little differently. Honestly, that's something they would probably do in a film today. Let's talk about John Williams, the music. Yes. I believe the score after Jaws, it was his first one after Jaws. It was really funny to me because in the credits, John Williams, like, oh, great music. There's no music at that point. The whole first part of the movie doesn't have any music. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be a minimalist score or something. But I think it's great. It, it's really good music. And during that climax, that contributes to that yes. nonstop suspense. It is minimalistic until really until you get to the final act. And then the music really plays a big part in it. Do we really need to say anything about John Williams? Because you know, if you're listening to this podcast and don't know, 211 award wins, 383 nominations. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jaws, Towering Inferno, which we've covered on this show. Superman the movie, I mean, so much. Now, here's the thing, though. And you probably don't know this. I bet I do. Oh maybe, oh, maybe you do. Maybe you do. Do you know the connection that John Williams has with Star Trek? I do. You do? Okay. Can I share it or you want to? I want you to go ahead and me? share. You want, I want okay. you to do it. I want you to do it. Excerpts from this score were used in the trailer for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Absolutely. I is there not... another one or is that it? No, that's it. I, okay. that was, I... Some of the very early trailers for Star Trek, it was obviously the first trailer they did for Star Trek, the motion picture. And I think it's the one featuring the narration of Orson Welles, which is another odd thing when you watch that trailer. It's like, oh my God, that's Orson Welles narrating 
Star Trek, showing you Paramount really wanted their Star Wars. John Williams, the mastermind behind Star Wars, has a Star Trek connection. Yeah. There's, there's well, you want to go ahead and get into that then, what you've got on the cast and crew and your Star Trek and Doctor Who connections? Uh, I don't have any Doctor Who connections uh, on, on these. You don't? I do. Oh, well, then. See, no, I'm kidding. I don't. I was going to say, good luck. <laughs> and I could not. We've got Robert Shaw playing the, I guess he's the lead character of Kavakov, was in Jaws, as well as From Russia With Love, one of the earliest James Bond films. I think we knew this. I think we mentioned it when we did the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. He actually was the voice of the character in that. Uh, Robert Shaw only made three more films after Black Sunday. He died in 1978 at the age of 51 of a heart attack. Hmm. So this was, uh, unfortunately, towards the end of, well, I guess, a shorter career. Bruce Dern. 191 credits and counting. The guy is 87 years old and is still cranking him out. One of his biggest films in recent years is a movie called Nebraska. Family Plot, the last Alfred Hitchcock film. Silent Running, which is a early 70s sci-fi, I don't call it classic, but definitely uh, part of that 70s sci-fi run of films pre-Star Wars. A film that I have, thanks to you, and I've not yet seen the incredible two-headed transplant. <laughs> oh, you got to get on that, Richard. The Hateful Eight from Quentin Tarantino. I already mentioned five episodes of The Big Valley, played an unhinged bad guy in every one. 87, latest film just this year called Old Dads. I guess it's a Netflix comedy, I'm guessing. He's got 10 films right now in various stages of pre-production. We will be seeing Bruce Dern <laughs> for some time to come. We won't be seeing him in a sequel of this, though. I don't think so. No, no. Martha Keller plays the character of Dahlia, the Palestinian agent, I guess. She's from Switzerland, so there was some films that I'm not familiar with. The two that around this time period that caught my eye, The Formula and Marathon Man. Mm. Fritz Weaver plays the character of Sam Corley, 142 credits. He's a character actor. If you don't know him by name, you know him by face. You've seen him countless times. Marathon Man, he was in Creep Show episodes, I think more than one episode of The X-Files. Twilight Zone, the 80s version, I believe. Tales from the Dark Side, Tales of the Unexpected, Night Gallery, Martian Chronicles, also in the Big Valley. He was also in an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, so another Star Trek connection. He died actually fairly recently, back in 2016 at the age of 90. We have Stephen Keats, who played Robert Mashevsky. Lots of TV shows, lots of crime drama, but a few films in our genre. The Last Dinosaur, Hangar 18, Twilight Zone, again, 1980s version, episode of Freddy's Nightmares. <laughs> He died at a young age, though. Died 1994 at the age of 49. We have a few smaller characters. I mentioned William Daniels, who played the character of Pew, I think, who was the counselor. Walter Gotell plays the character of Colonel Riot, best known for playing the role of General Gogol in six James Bond films. He was kind of the Russian he wasn't James Bond's counterpart, but he was a contact who would come in to play. 
He was in the films from The Spy Who Loved Me uh, all the way through um, the rest of Roger Moore's run and the very first Timothy Dalton, The Living Daylights. And he was also in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, episode called Home Soil. Was he the character that Robert Shaw met with and sort of threatened? Yes. Because he wanted intel? I love that scene because Robert Shaw says what he wants and the guy sort of is not going to participate. Then he goes, five minutes ago, you had a choice. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very good scene. Clyde Kusatsu played the freighter captain. He's actually in three episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation as Admiral Nakamura, including the final Star Trek Next Generation episode, All Good Things. Hmm. We should also probably give a shout out to various NFL football players and coaches and crew, probably most well known today amongst them being the legendary Terry Bradshaw. And I think that's all I've got. I am not familiar with this person, but we have an Academy Award nominee from The Godfather Part Two, Michael V. Gazzo. He played the importer-exporter that coordinated the... Yes. receipt of the plastic explosives i yes yeah he's yeah well-known character from the guy yeah, i don't r- recognize him for the screenplay written by ivan moffat who had 14 credits giant was really his his big claim to fame kenneth ross had seven credits including the odessa file and day of the jackal from around this time period similar spy thriller action thrillers and then uh, Ernest Lehman, who had worked with Hitchcock on films like North by Northwest and Family Plot again. He was also did work on West Side Story and The Sound of Music, showing his versatility. Now, John Frankenheimer was the director who did a couple of big movies, Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May. Versatile career, though. He also did an episode of Tales from the Crypt. He did Prophecy. I won't say he's most well-known for, but a footnote in the uh, horror film community. He was brought in on the island of Dr. Moreau in 1996 after John Stanley was fired after four days. He was the director that they brought in because he has a good track record. There's a whole documentary about the disaster that film was. He was brought in to try to ground things as things were spiraling out of control rapidly. First of all, I think this is a shame. You mentioned Manchurian Candidate, 1962. One of my favorite movies ever. Classic movie. I think it was big in the 60s. All Fall Down, 62. Birdman of Alcatraz, 62. He worked with Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Frederick Mark, Ava Gardner. I haven't seen it, but he did Seconds in 1966. Grand Prix in 66. Definitely a very successful director. He got screwed. No Oscars. No. The only thing he ever got was nominated for two Golden Globes, not even nominated for an Oscar for anything. His award, and we should be glad of this, but I think when you look at this body of work, it's a crime. He won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films, for God's sake, in 1997. I think that was because of Island of Moreau. However, That is negated by the fact that he won a Razzie Award the same year for that movie. That is a crime that this man was not recognized. Venturing Candidate is is such a classic. 
I haven't seen that film in a few years. It makes me want to see it again. Oh, love that it. film is so, so good. Frankenheimer played a big part in the use of the Goodyear blimp mm, yeah. in this film because he had a good relationship with them because of the movie Grand Prix that you mentioned that he made in 1966. And so that allowed, you know, because of that good relationship, they allowed the blimp to be used in this film. Now there was some stipulations. The blimp can't kill anyone and they don't want anyone to die by the propellers. So, <laughs> that's kind of like, yeah, we want green M&Ms when we get there. It's a weird request. They didn't want the blimp to be viewed as a weapon, even though it is in this movie. After the Super Bowl, there was additional footage filmed in the Orange Bowl using United Way volunteers to help with some of the different crowd scenes. I don't know how United Way got involved, but it was an agreement or a partnership. Robert Shaw ended up narrating a short film for the United Way in exchange for them basically organizing the volunteers to be used for the film, which... I'm sure save them and get rather than trying to go through and getting like extras, having United Way say, look, we'll handle all that. We just need this guy to come in the studio and narrate a film for us. I have one more question for you. I think I read in that from the booklet that there was actual footage of Jimmy Carter from the Super Bowl that they showed. I read, though, that there was just an actor that looked a lot like Jimmy Carter, which was odd because... Jimmy Carter didn't become president until later that year and Gerald Ford was president. Do you, first of all, I didn't even see the president. They talked about him coming and his suite and secret service and all that, but I never saw him. Did you? No, no. And yeah, you're right. I mean, Jimmy Carter would have been elected in November of 76. I don't know where they would have been at in the filming of the movie. Anything else? I love the movie. I would easily go back and rewatch this one. I thought it was very suspenseful and so intricate and all the things that had to happen. I'd read something that some people said that they almost went too detailed on some of the elements. Mm. You got to be careful on how much detail you give because basically then it becomes a how-to. It's easily out there, which is a good thing. You can rent it on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. You can stream it for free on Amazon Prime if you're a member. It's also on Paramount+. Plus. You mentioned the Arrow Blu-ray. You get it for less than $20. An easy film. It's out there. Add it to your Super Bowl viewing. Make a party out of it. I loved it. I thoroughly loved it. I did too. Richard, before we take a break, I've got a brain puzzler for you. Don't answer now, but when we come back, I want you to explain to me. What is the difference between a blimp and a Zeppelin? Up ship! On May 3rd, 1937, the dirigible Hindenburg left Germany on a luxury air cruise to the United States. Tomorrow, the Zeppelin will fly over New York City and blow up. She spells out how and where the Zeppelin will be destroyed. She was as long as an ocean liner and as tall as a skyscraper. The ultimate in safety and comfort. A grand hotel set free of the earth and sent soaring into the skies. Rainbows circled her prow. 
St. Elmo's fire danced through her companionways. Don't be upset. We've been in no danger. Take her down below the fog layer, Hans. She was a fantasy of tomorrow floating through the world of yesterday. Marvelous sensation on an airship. Floating. Timeless. But on May 6th, while preparing to land, the Hindenburg suddenly burst into flames. And the romance of the Zeppelin came to an end. No! No! Why was special security assigned to this flight? From a military standpoint, she's a flying dinosaur. Why was the Gestapo on board? Arrest forth by Douglas Oliver. Brilliant problem. Who was diagramming the framework of the ship? There are no secrets on Zeppelins. What was Operation K? They've picked up my passport. George C. Scott, Anne Bancroft, William Atherton, Roy Thinnes, Gig Young, Burgess Meredith, Charles Durning, Richard A. Dysart. 62 people lived to tell the story. Was it sabotage? What the devil were you doing up there? An accident? You've only got about 15 minutes! An act of God. There's less than 10 minutes left. They're all gonna die. There's a bomb. What really happened on the Hindenburg? After two years of production, brought to you at a cost of $15 million, the Hindenburg. On May 3rd, 1937, the airship LZ-129 Hindenburg launched from Frankfurt Airfield for a trip to the United States, carrying 36 passengers and 61 crew. Two weeks earlier, the German embassy received a letter stating that the Hindenburg would be destroyed when it reached America. Colonel Franz Ritter is loaned to the airship for the voyage to Lakehurst Naval Air Station in Manchester Township, New Jersey. During the flight, he thoroughly and persistently investigates the potential threat. The rest, as they say, is history. But what caused the Hindenburg to burst into flames as it was landing? Welcome back, everyone. As we mentioned, we are going backwards with today's episodes. Therefore, the stage that needs to be set is the year 1975, at the time that the Hindenburg was released. Richard, what was going on? Set that stage for us. The movie is released on Christmas Day, 1975, so it's the holiday season. I went with 1975 as our focus. The top songs, if you wanted to stay home and listen to the radio, top songs for the week of December 27th, 1975. Now, top rising song of the week was Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss. They were just on the verge of of exploding on the music scene. They had been around for a couple of years at this point, I believe. But they were getting ready to release Kiss Alive, their double live album that really put them on the map and everything exploded. Rock and Roll All Night was just rising up the charts. And while it wouldn't be their biggest hit, it is still to this day, one of their their staple songs. And I think it's interesting because as we record this, it is December 2nd, and tonight KISS is playing their final concert of their farewell tour in Madison Square Garden. Hmm. Here we go with the top 10. It's the 1970s, folks, so you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Number 10, I Love Music, Part 1 by the OJs. Number nine, Fly Robin Fly by Silver Convention. 
Number eight, Fox on the Run by Sweet. Ooh, I like that song. Number seven, I told you we had a little bit of this. Well, this would be a little bit of that. Convoy by C.W. McCall. Big at the time. Absolutely. Very much a song of the 70s. Now, here's an interesting thing. Number six, I Write the Songs by Barry Manilow. I have the record right here by my side. For those of you who are following on Facebook, my daughter does an advent calendar thing for me. She started this a couple of years ago with a Batman calendar. Last year, it was Marvel Funko Pops. This year, she bought a mystery box of 25 records. She has wrapped all of these records up individually, dated them, and that is my advent calendar. I get a mystery record every day for the entire month. And the bonus record, was opened on the day before, so I went November 30th, and it was Barry Manilow's Trying to Get the Feeling record from 1975 that features I Write the Songs. Number five, the theme from Mahogany, Do You Know Where You're Going To by Diana Ross. Number four, Love Roller Coaster by the Ohio Players. Number three, That's the Way I Like It by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Uh-huh. Uh, you're going to do that. Number two, I never got into this group. Fingernails, chalkboard, Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers. Really? I don't. I don't know why I never got into the Bay City Rollers. They were huh. they were huge for like 15 minutes, and just as quick as they came, they went. And number one, let's do it again by the Staple Singers. That's the music from 1975. The box office, if you went to the movies, December 31st, 1975, number one movie was the first of an eventual three weeks, Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino. Other top movies of the year included Young Frankenstein, which we covered in March of this year in episode 78, The Towering Inferno, which we covered in January of this year in episode 76, and Jaws, which spent 14 weeks at number one and was the top grossing film of the year with more than $260 million. Other horror films from 1975 included William Castle's last film, Bug. We had a William Castle retrospective from earlier this year. The Ghoul and Legend of the Werewolf, both with Mr. Peter Cushing. The Devil's Reign and Race with the Devil, which we covered in episode 61 back in September 2021, Trilogy of Terror and Werewolf and the Yeti starring Paul Nashi, which we mentioned on last month's episode. Everything is connected to the Classic Horse Club podcast. If you stayed at home on Saturday night, December 27th, these were your television choices. On ABC, Saturday Night Live. No, we're not talking about Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and the rest of those guys. This is Saturday Night Live with Mr. Howard Cosell. (laughs) His variety show that lasted all of 18 episodes. Sadly, I remember this. At 8 o'clock Central Standard Time, we had SWAT, and then we had Matt Helm, which was a short-lived 13-episode run of the popular character that was was well-known at the time, crime drama. Over at NBC, we had Emergency, which was a staple, I think, of that time period. And it's still incredibly popular in reruns today. The Seventh Dawn, 
1964 movie starring William Holden. Over at CBS, Saturday night, it's the 70s. You know there's good stuff happening over there. We got the Jeffersons kicking off the night. The only show of the night that did not ring a bell with me, a show called Doc. This was a sitcom that ran two seasons and 29 episodes. This was followed by the Mary Tyler Moore show, the Bob Newhart mm. show, and the Carol Burnett oh, show. Oh, yeah. That's what was happening if we weren't going to go see the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg was written by Nelson Gidding, based on a book by Michael M. Mooney, as well as historical events. Directed by Robert Wise, produced by the Filmmakers Group, released by Universal Pictures. As you said, on December 25th, 1975, it runs 123 minutes. Richard, before we talk about this, you had some homework. Tell me, what is the difference between a Zeppelin and a blimp. And this is not a joke. I seriously don't know. And I'm hoping you can tell me. If you can't, that's fine. You know, I don't. My quick-witted response would be that a blimp has a really good year and a Zeppelin is made out of lead. But I'm bunch. Okay, that's... That's better than nothing. What do you think of the movie? Insert groan right there. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Very different than Black Sunday. Definitely has more of the disaster tropes, if you will, being that this is a historical film. I kind of knew how it was going to (laughs) end. It's the question of what are they going to show us in between? The drama that we see played out in the film is not really historical. Going into that, it's a different kind of film, right? It's, It's a disaster film, but it's based on a real event. The other thing about it being fictional is, and correct me if I'm wrong, we don't know what caused the Hindenburg to explode. So this portrays one theory, and I think that's interesting. I think a good a theory as any, a little maybe more far-fetched than probably really, but still very interesting. It was not my first time viewing. I had seen it. This is one of those that I remember being boring. I wasn't really thrilled to watch it again, but boy, was I wrong. I loved this movie quite a bit. The historical part of it may be boring in the the sense that as far as like what caused the accident, it may have just been the Hindenburg was not a well-made vehicle and it crashed because at the time the Germans are not going to admit that a vehicle that they built was not built well. So let's just cover up anything and just, I think really it could be, it really as simple as that. When you think about it, (laughs) You've got all of this combustible gas that could go up at any... What could possibly go wrong? How flimsy the skin, if you will, you know? I mean, gosh, all it's going to take is, hey, guess what? There's a hailstorm coming up or a flock of birds that attack and decide to roost. The Goodyear blimp not dealing with the combustible matter, right? I mean, you're, you're dealing with something a little bit different. So No, I think we are, aren't we? Because they say, well, let's shoot the goddamn thing down, and they say we can't. That's it's true. That's true. But I think it, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, the construction of it is, there's similarities, differences. It's not as volatile as the Hindenburg was. It's not as flimsy as the Hindenburg was. It was just a recipe for disaster. 
Let's run through those tropes that I mentioned, and you'll see they are plentiful. There'll be some plot spoilers here, but I'm sure we'll circle back and talk about them. I won't mention the all-star cast, but this true all-star cast with, I don't know, I've got four lines of names here on my notes. Multiple lives in danger. Yep, there's a bomb threat. Like, like someday they don't know that it's there, but some yeah. there, and they're trying to prevent it. Warnings are disbelieved. Well, the letter that triggers all of this is turned out to be not a hoax, but questionable, I guess, in its integrity. So some people say, okay, we're done. We don't have to pay attention to security anymore and are told to stop. But our hero, hey, he's there. He may as well keep investigating. And thank goodness he does. Well, I guess it doesn't matter if he did or not, because same result. Dramatic confrontation there is between the good guy and the bad guy. So Colonel Franz Ritter, played by George C. Scott, Carl Berth, played by William Atherton. Nah, he's a, a sympathetic bad guy, unlike Bruce Dern. He's got his reasons. Reasons are convincing enough that I don't know if I'd say Ritter becomes complicit. He sort of does in a way, but yeah. that will not cause the danger that perhaps Carl Berth doesn't really care. I think about. he's he's got convictions. A brave sacrifice from a hero. Franz, George C. Scott does make a sacrifice. I'll just say that and perhaps not spoil specifically, but yeah. it's not a purposeful. Sometimes in a disaster movie, they purposely sacrifice their lives. This was accidental. Something we did not have in Black Sunday, the survival of babies and pets. Babies and pets never die in a disaster movie. And here we have a Dalmatian, sure enough, even specifically pointed out in the list of survivors, a little cutout picture of the Dalmatian. He did, he did survive. There are several daring rescues in this, as long as you consider being thrown out of a crashing Zeppelin being a daring rescue. But there is also one very intense scene where, and I don't know what caused the tear in the skin. Something hit it and, and caused a tear, and someone has to go out on the wing and try to repair it. So that's very suspenseful. That's not a job that I would wanted for any amount of the world. It's like, here, if you don't fix this, we're going to crash. But hang on, and you know, we'll put a rope around you. Best of luck. Yeah, yeah, that was suspenseful. But in here, I'm going to go off for a minute. One of the things I like about this movie is just there's something very majestic and yet calm and soothing about watching the Hindenburg fly. It's, first of all, very close to the ground, right? I mean, this is not like an airplane yeah. that's up in the sky. And so you go over water, you go over ice, you go over cities, lights, you see the northern lights, you may go into a storm. It's all just very beautiful and i really think the special effects were fantastic and i just enjoyed watching it and that sets kind of a slow pace for the film because it ain't a fast moving thing even in the credits and the ending it's i think maybe even the same footage of it just slowly moving across the sky into the clouds maybe the sun setting the clouds are a pretty color but i found that very soothing and enjoyable what did that have to do with anything? I'm not sure. The cast of characters, usually large, usually interwoven with their stories. The same is true here. We have Franz that has left home. Some woman who later is one of my questions for you to explain who she was, but they're in some type of relationship. And the fact that he's going, I think she discourages him from going and he should just retire. He can't do that. He's got his obligation. So he leaves her at home. 
His son has died in the war a couple of years ago. The Countess and Bancroft used to know Franz. We don't know exactly why. I'm thinking some type of romantic relationship, perhaps in their past. Carl, the so-called villain, has a woman at home. She's his collaborator, and she will later go through some drama on the side at home that's connected to what's going on on the Hindenburg. We have Reed Channing and his wife, Mildred. They are pregnant for the first time. He is some type of entertainer, and there is an entertainer on board, played by Joseph Spa, who auditions. He wants to be in the next show that Reed Channing is performing. We have Albert Breslau, who was given a pin at the station before the Hindenburg took off. We learn that it's filled with diamonds, so he has intrigue going on. He's joined by his wife, Mildred, and their three children. And finally, we have Emilio and Emilio, was that his name? Yeah, I guess Emilio Burgess Meredith. Yes. And Major Napier, Rene Abergeunois, maybe, who are, quote, traveling companions. The nature of their relationship, I am not certain of. So lots of drama, lots of stuff with these characters going on. That is a trope of a disaster movie. The mental or physical handicap, phobia, that shows up a little bit. The character Edward Douglas, he is suspected, but he presents it as a business opportunity that he's in a race to get to. But really, the only race he wants to get to is to the horse track. We think he has a betting problem. So that is definitely a a mental problem. And the Countess's daughter is deaf. She's not in much of the movie, but we're throwing in that handicapped character. Very much a disaster movie. It covers all of those tropes and an excellent job pinpointing all of that. There are similarities between characters in the movie and real life people in which the author kind of loosely based some of the characters on. So I just want to mention a few of these here to you. The character of Colonel Franz Ritter is actually based upon Colonel Fritz Erdmann. Now, Erdman was actually on board the final flight, but there is no evidence to support that he was actually a security officer or that he was involved in any type of investigation. The character of Martin Vogel is actually based on two characters, a Carl Otto Clemens as well as a Luftwaffe major Hans Hugo Witt. There's no evidence, though, that either Clemens or Witt were actually part of the Gestapo. The ship's commander, Captain Max Pruss, he acts kind of dismissive of the safety concerns that are expressed by Ernst Lehman. Now, in reality, the real captain would have been under kind of Lehman's pressure, under his command, so to speak, to rush the landing of the airship. So if the events played out as we saw them in the film, the captain would not have been able to voice his concerns in the way that he did. The character of Captain Ernst Lehman, now he's played in the movie as being kind of wary of the Nazis and that he's on good terms with the character of Dr. Eckner. In reality, though, the real Ernst Lehman was a well-known Nazi supporter, or he might have been. He might have been pretending to be. This is where history and facts are kind of a little bit vague. It's possible that he was pretending to be in favor of the Nazi regime just so he could essentially benefit financially from the Zeppelin company. 
1929, he actually filed a declaration of intent to become a United States citizen, but then apparently decided to stay in Germany when he was given command of the Hindenburg in 1936. The characters of Reed and Bess Channing. Now, in the movie, they were Broadway show promoters and composers. They're actually loosely based on the real-life adults. They were journalists who were associated with the Zeppelin company. Their relationship with German acrobat Joseph Spa, well, there might have been some reality to that and the fact that Joseph Spa was a real character and he did own a dog and was on the manifest. We see in the movie that the dog is saved. There was actually two dogs aboard the Hindenburg and unfortunately neither of them survived. The Breslaus are based upon the Herman Daner family. They were in fact on board the last flight. The reality is though that the Daners were not Jewish and while Mrs. Breslau and all three of the children did survive in the film, in reality, Mr. Daner died in the crash and one of the daughters actually died later on due to burns sustained in the fire of the Hindenburg. The character of Edward Douglas, now he was a real passenger on board the Hindenburg, but there's a subplot that's in the book and all of that is pretty much dismissed as being 100% fiction. So even though there was a real name of Edward uh, Douglas, a passenger with that name, any similarities between the two apparently seem to be fictionalized. There's a Hugo Eckner. Now, he was basically the head of the Zeppelin company. He was actually known to be an oppose, uh, opposing view of the Nazi regime. In the movie, he claims that Hitler wanted the airship named after him, but he refused to do so. In reality, it is known that Hitler was not a fan of the program. He was certainly not a fan of the Hindenburg. Didn't want his name attached to it because he thought it was going to be a failure and didn't want his name attached to failure. So there you go. There's just some facts and figures and some similarities and some differences between the characters in the movie and the character in the, the characters in the books. A lot of fiction, I think, has been thrown in there with maybe a little bit of reality sprinkled here and there between uh, all the different characters. You know, in Black Sunday, we didn't talk much about the politics of it. This has politics, too, and that's the area where I don't really understand. So this was 1937, right? Had World War II begun? Well, Germany was becoming a force to be reckoned with, but it was still in that time period where the first actions, but no, World War II hadn't officially begun yet, no. But well, they mentioned Hitler a lot. And that was probably the most stupid question ever, because if we were in the midst of World War II, would the United States let a German balloon float across the border? 1937, yeah, there's obviously still some relations there. And the point in reference to the movie is apparently there was, what, a resistance against Hitler even at that early point? And that is the sort of conspiracy that is for a, a decent cause that makes our villain somewhat sympathetic and that convinces George C. Scott to allow it to happen. Am I right? Big, broad strokes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are obviously, you know, the, the, a lot of people think that Hitler rises to power, that every German was like, yay, Hitler. No, that's not the case. 
The reality is there was people who would have been absolutely in support of Hitler, and there would have been others who looked at him and thought, this guy's nuts, but weren't necessarily in a position to do anything. There was some resistance, but they had no backing. They didn't have the power, so to speak. Yeah, there is a scene that at the beginning, I believe it's when Ritter is getting his assignment and the person sending him says, there is no resistance movement, Colonel. And he replies, that's reassuring coming from the Minister of Propaganda. (laughs) To be honest, that's the most I understood about the, the resistance thing in this movie. Even now you see something like this and some of the stuff that was happening in 1930s. Sadly, you still have today. It's reality. It's politics. There's always going to be somebody to be the spin doctor and trying to put a spin on stuff. One of the tropes I didn't mention is that a lot of disaster movies have a theme song, particularly a love song. Well, the Hindenburg has a song. There's a lot to be said about the Fuhrer. And if anything came close to, if there was something I came close to not liking it was this whole scene with the song. I I get its point. What did you think about that? Kind of funny, kind of odd placement when that popped up. I found it funny that the scene apparently was cut from some of the early VHS releases. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I don't think negative comments about Hitler will ever go out of style. (laughs) (laughs) Hard to, to do anything positive. It was kind of an odd scene. I kind of sat there and thought at the time, some of those officers on board, but they really had just stood by and not spoke out about. Now, yes, I know the the captain stands up and does that thing. And it's like, you know, the performance is done. I'm thinking, though, that something would have happened to those performers. Something did happen. The Hindenburg blew up and crashed. I don't really have many more notes. I addressed most of everything in that segment with the tropes, but I just want to say that I just loved the look of this movie. I loved the opening with the old universal plane flying around the globe. By the way, something that Xanadu did. I loved it then. I love it now. And the opening with the newsreel, which I assume was an actual newsreel about the Hindenburg and it getting ready to launch and all of that. I loved the ending when it turned black and white and the climax unfolds in black and white. It's beautiful. The footage of the Hindenburg at night when there's spotlights on the ground shining up on it, moving back and forth. That is just beautiful. And I think I misspoke earlier. I don't think it was Northern Lights. I think it was St. Elmo's Fire that like shot electricity through the Hindenburg, like a light. Like a light guiding your way down the aisle at a movie theater. (laughs) It's beautiful. And again, I just think it'd be cool to ride on one. You could open a window while you're in flight. Let in the fresh air. Yeah. I liked it. I liked the look. I liked the feel of it. I agree. I I think it was a well-made movie. You've got a well-known director at the helm who knows exactly what he's doing can always enhance a film if all the other elements are there, right? You you can have a great director, but if you don't have a good cast or a good story, then you know you can have a disaster. I think everything worked well on this. I've got a few notes. I'll go high level on some of this stuff because you could really go deep down. You mentioned the the newsreel footage. I'm not sure that that's an actual newsreel mm-hmm. from start to finish. 
I know that elements of it are, I couldn't find for sure. I, I, I read two different things, one that it was and one that it wasn't. Robert Wise put a lot of uh, attention into some of the minor details and did a lot of research as he was doing this film. I thought it was interesting that at the time, a bit of an effort to try to find film footage and documentation about then, but now we you just Google everything, right? They think about when they made these films and doing something like this, you're having to go into to archives and microfiche and try to, to pull this historical data out much harder to do back then. And the work of, well, the director and of course, anyone he had working for him, you know, the crew would have had to spend extra time. And so the length of just the pre-production, I think would be longer. The Hindenburg, the model that they used is actually on display at the National Air and Space Museum. Mm. Uh, I went there as a kid. I don't know at what point it was taken to the museum. I went there in 81. I don't recall seeing it. There was an accident actually that happened towards the end of the film, the scene of the crash was actually supposed to be a little bit more expansive in the final cut. There was a fire, actually, and several of the stuntmen were burned. They used some of the footage, but they weren't able to use all of it. Might have been more impactful if the stunt would have gone as planned than ultimately the way it was. And they couldn't go back and and recreate it. It would have been too costly. We saw some dramatic escapes. People are are jumping off. And if they were based on fact, honestly, when I was watching this, I didn't realize people were jumping. As you were talking, I was just thinking, the Hindenburg blows up. Oh, people burned. They died. That's not the case. The people are in a small part underneath. Yeah. If it explodes, then it crashes. The people are alive. It's not the explosion that killed them, right? Yeah. There obviously was an opportunity for some people to get off, which I never really perceived before. Yeah, me either. So some of the characters that we see jumping off are based on real life people who did manage to get off to one degree or another. Definitely a lot of research went into how the Zeppelin was constructed, uh, the interior, how the functioning of it, what was involved in flying the Zeppelin, what was involved in getting it from point A to point B. But they had to do some things for dramatic purposes. The best knowledge is that, no, there were no fabric rips in the Hindenburg that caused someone to have to go out on the wing and repair it. Apparently, something did happen to a Zeppelin in 1928, where there was a tear. The author of the novel took that historical moment and kind of incorporated into the film to make it part of the Hindenburg story. The Hindenburg did have a specially constructed aluminum baby grand piano for its 1936 season. It was not on the flight of the Hindenburg. That means there was no song. There's a lot to be said about that. There was no song. Yes. And there's a whole long list of little similarities and differences and, and creative differences. Music by David Shire, it wasn't as impactful as I think that it could have been. It sometimes almost felt like there wasn't a soundtrack to the film. At least that was my take on it. And it's interesting when I looked at the musical career of David Shire, 
all across the board, really hit and miss. He does things like the taking of Pelham one, two, three, all the president's men. He, he was involved in Saturday Night Fever and Apocalypse Now. But then before he made it big, he did some work on The Sixth Sense. But then by the 90s, he's doing work on things like Monkey Shines and then the Dark Room short-lived anthology series. In some of his later films, he's actually just a musician. And he's mm. actually not really involved in the composing. Not a John Williams. At the beginning, I thought it was a little over-enthusiastic. It was like overboard at the beginning when maybe yeah. it need to be. And I know they're the grandeur, the majesty, I get it, but it bothered me. And to be honest, at a certain point, I didn't even notice it, which I yeah. guess could be a good thing or a bad thing. Let's go with the cast. There's a large cast. So I went with the bigger names, and we're just going to go rattle these down as quickly as possible. We have George C. Scott as Colonel Franz Ritter. We just kind of talked about him because he was yeah. just a little bit ago. Patton, the Changeling, Exorcist Three. I will be watching him this month in A Christmas Carol from 1984. Died in 1999 at the age of 71 of a burst abdominal aneurysm. We have Anne Bancroft as the Countess Ursula von Rugen. Big films like The Miracle Worker and The Graduate and The Elephant Man. Lesser works. She was actually in early part of her career in an episode of Suspense on television. She was also in Gorilla at Large. <laughs> and she was in Dracula Dead and Loving It towards the end of her career. We have William Atherton as Carl Berth. Probably, I think, his two best-known films today are in Die Hard and is Walter Peck in Ghostbusters, playing an ass in both of those films. <laughs> we have Roy Thinnes as Martin Vogel. We've talked about him before on the show. Uh, he was in, been in The Invaders, The Norless Tapes, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Uh, am I missing something? No, keep going. I'm, I'm waiting to hear it. That's all I've got. He played Roger in the 90s revival of Dark Shadows. I know, I know. Oh, you, you're me. <laughs> but I just, I threw that out there and you took the bait. Yes, yep. yes. Dark Shadows reference there. We have Gig Young as Edward Douglas. Gig Young's got kind of a tragic story. He was definitely an alcoholic by this point of his career. 1977, he did Spectre, which was mm. written by Gene Roddenberry, pilot for a potential series that didn't make it. He died the very next year, 1978, at the age of 64. He was married for just three weeks to a woman about half his age, killed her, and then killed himself. Mm. And nobody knows why to this day what happened. We've got the wonderful Burgess Meredith playing Emilio Pagetta. Best known to many in Rocky, the Rocky film series is also in Clash of the Titans, Burnt Offerings, The Sentinel, Night Gallery, Torture Garden. He played the Penguin in the Batman television series and theatrical film. And I always remember him for a quirky little thing. I guarantee you most people don't know this one. It's called Winter of the Witch. It is a short film featuring Hermione Gingold as a witch. 1970-71, he's the narrator of this short mm. film, and it was featured on the CBS Children's Film Festival with Kukla Fran and Ollie. We have Charles Durning playing the character of Captain Max Bruce. He was in Final Countdown. And Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is probably the biggest mm. film in the horror genre. Richard Dicer plays Captain Ernst Lehman. 
He was in The Thing, Meteor, which we talked about at the beginning of this year. He was also in Terminal Man and Gemini Man. Robert Clary plays the uh, clown, Joseph Spa, best known for the role of Captain LeBeau in Hogan's Heroes. René Aubergenois, I hope I pronounced that correctly, played the character of Major Napier. He was actually, I did not know this, he was the very first Father Mulcahy in the original MASH movie. Huh. Of course. Most known for his part as Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Another Star Trek reference. You can't get away from him. He died in 2019 at the age of 79 of lung cancer. Alan Oppenheimer plays Albert Breslau. We talked about him when we did Westworld. I've talked about him numerous times. We're playing the second Dr. Rudy Wells in The Six Million Dollar Man. He played three roles in Star Trek. He played a Klingon in Star Trek The Next Generation. He played in Star Trek Voyager. And he played a starship captain of the USS Odyssey in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was the first starship destroyed by the Dominion, and that kick-started the Dominion War. We have Catherine Hellman, who plays his wife, Mrs. Mildred Breslau, best known for 284 episodes combined for the television shows Soap and Who's the Boss? Love soap. I believe that is all I have for the cast, but I, I stopped there because that's an incredibly long list. Very good. Good job. Yeah, I'm not done yet. Just a few things. So this based on the novel, as you said, by Michael M. Mooney. So the screenplay by Nelson Gidding, who did The Haunting and The Andromeda Strain, as well as Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which maybe we'll cover that in our next disaster episode. Who knows? There was also a couple of other writers who, I don't know what their involvement was in this show, but they're credited, uh, Richard Levinson and William Link. And apparently these guys were a team because they were involved in the creation of Columbo and Mannix and Murder, She Wrote. Wow. Made for television mysteries were their thing. Maybe they helped add some of the mystery elements to this. And of course, we mentioned... Director Robert Wise, Sound of Music, West Side Story, The Haunting, Andromeda Strain, Audrey Rose. And yes, he directed Star Trek The Motion Picture, which we've already talked about in this Trek-filled episode. So (laughs) that is, I will stop there. That's all I've got on the cast and crew and trivia. I'm done. Thank you. Still, good job. I guess we're ready to move on then. Where can people watch it? This one's a little harder to find. It's not streaming anywhere that I'm aware of for free, but you can rent it on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. Also get it Universal Blu-ray for less than $15. I liked both movies. I think I give the edge to Black Sunday. No particular reason. I loved watching them both. I loved the way they were constructed and the way that they look. Filmed sets, everything. I think they're two terrific movies I just think maybe Black Sunday's a tinge more exciting for me. I agree with you 100%. Okay, let's take a break. Come back and finish up with new business. Breaker 1-9, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, Big Ben? Come on. Oh, yeah, 10-4, Big Ben, for sure, for sure. By golly, it's clean, clear to Flagtown. Come on. Yeah, it's a big 10-4 there, Big Benny. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, looks like we got us a convoy. 
Welcome back for new business. We don't have a lot of home video releases. That's probably because we had an abundance of them previously. Coming up for the holiday season, we're in the midst of the holiday season. We're looking towards the first of the year. Not a lot, but a couple of things I wanted to mention. From Shout Factory, we have a movie called Funeral Home. And I did not get the year on that. I think it's 70s or 80s. Hey, it's a horror movie coming out. Cool poster art and cover. A little more familiar with the Kino Lorber releases. We have a Blu-ray release of House of the Long Shadows on December 12th. That's, of course, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, and John Carradine. Yes. That's the movie where the cast list makes the movie sound a lot better than it actually is. I always forget, though, it was directed by Pete Walker, who has done some interesting things in his career earlier in his career. There's another version of the Quatermass Experiment. Not another version. It's same movie. Hino Lorber is again on December 12th. Then jumping forward to January 30th, not specifically horror, but we have a, a terrific movie called Scarlet Street. It was directed by Fritz Lang, so lots of cred there, and stars Joan Bennett from Dark Shadows. It's a great movie. Film Masters, the company, we still haven't proven their product. They're the ones doing the public domain. The Devil's Partner and Creature from the Haunted Sea are coming out January 16th. The Devil's Partner is striking to me because that is one of my favorite movie posters. It's the centaur with... I don't remember in the box art. It's a like a girl riding on his back. I don't think that's in the actual poster. But anyway, I love that that poster. It's a nice hunky torso of a man on a horse's body. Really good art, whoever that artist was. Gosh, that's it. That's all I have for releases. Did I miss any? We mentioned a lot last time. There are things coming out in December that I'm not going to mention again. I'm really proud of our birthdays and anniversaries section because these are all related to disaster movies. And there are some surprises here. But on birthdays, we have George Millet was born December 8th, 1861. I don't know that he specifically did a disaster movie, but certainly a rocket crashing into the eye of the moon to me qualifies. (laughs) An innovator in so many ways of everything that we watch now. Much of it originated with him. Two Hammer film directors, these are not the movies you think of, but they did direct legit disaster movies. Roy Ward Baker, born on December 19th, 1916, he directed A Night to Remember about the Titanic. Oh, wow. I totally forgot that. That's interesting. Yeah. Then Freddie Francis was born December 22nd, 1917. He directed The Deadly Bees for Amicus. The scales there are tipped a bit. And then finally... Not pointing out any specific, but certainly he presented stories that had disastrous events. This is Rod Serling, born December 25th, 1924. Our movies, we had both. This is going to tie into the blog here. Sorry. And you say I never plug myself. That's all I'm doing. Plug away. Crossing over between movies and television, we had disaster movies released in the month of December over the years. Poseidon Adventure, December 13th, 72. Towering Inferno, December 16th, 74. The Hindenburg. Did you know the Hindenburg was released December 25th, 1975? I had no clue. Yeah. And then 
a movie called Tidal Wave, which actually was a Japanese disaster movie. It opened in Japan in December 29th, 1973. It didn't open in the U.S. until later. And then on television, we had Smash Up on Interstate 5 that aired December 3rd, 1976. It was about a big traffic jam and car pileup on the highway. That aired on ABC. Had another B-movie, Terror Out of the Sky, aired on CBS December 26, 1978. And we had a disaster movie, sort of, about a blackout. The Night the City Screamed, December 14th. 1980 that aired on ABC. That's all I got this month for new business. I thought it would be fun as we talk about the new business to kind of take a quick look back at what we accomplished this year on the podcast. It is December. We're the end of the year. Some of you might be listening to this before Christmas. Some of you might be listening to it on your Christmas break. We accomplished quite a bit this year. There was some fun milestones that we had along the way. We started off the year with disaster films, and it seems a lifetime ago since we talked about The Towering Inferno and Meteor, but that's where we started off the year. We covered Lady Frankenstein, Countess Dracula, Young Frankenstein, Uncle Was a Vampire. We did a couple retrospectives. William Castle got covered with Macabre and Nightwalker. We did a Bird Eye Gordon retrospective with The Spider and Food of the Gods. We had our fourth annual Summer at the Drive-In which gave us Billy the Kid versus Dracula, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. We did Legend of Hell House and Rosemary's Baby, Godzilla versus the Thing, a.k.a. Mothra versus Godzilla, and Reptilicus. We focused a little bit on Roger Corman and Edgar Allan Poe with a look at Premature Burial in the Haunted Palace. Then in October, we just threw it at you every single week. With the other and Sugar Hill and Scream and Scream Again and The Changeling and House on Haunted Hill. Last month, we had a little bit more love for Paul Nashie with Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman and Inquisition. And then ended out the month here, as we just talked about, with the Hindenburg and Black Sunday. We also had those great month themes, but we had guests. And that was a big part as well. In fact, we had more guests this year than we've ever had on the show before. During our fourth annual summer at the drive-in, we started off by ourselves, but along the way, we ran into our friends Greg and Genius from the Nightmare Junkhead podcast. We had Steve Turek coming in at the last minute to wrap up the summer at the drive-in with us. And then, of course, in October, we welcomed Ansel Farage and Dominique Lamsey's and Steve Turek again and Alistair Hughes and Jonathan Angarola and Frederick Cooper. And then we had Steve Sullivan on last month. That's a pretty impressive list and a special thank you to each and every one of those guests who helped make 2023 happen because without their participation, a lot of those things would not have happened. So as we wrap up 2023 and give everyone a big thank you, we've got some fun stuff percolating for 2024. Episode 100 is coming up next year. Way back in January of 2017, we started it all off with a look at King Kong from 1976. Episode 100 is coming up next fall. If everything goes as planned, that's what we're looking at. So we got a lot of fun stuff coming up. I hope that you join us. Going to kick off 2024 with some very fun stuff. And guess what? I think we might have another guest because we had so many in 2023. It's fun to bring in some friends to enjoy these classic horror films. 
you know, we do month by month and kind of all melts together. It feels good to sit and look back at what you've actually accomplished over a period of time. So thanks for pulling that together. Lord knows my memory wouldn't be able to do it. Um, I had no memory. This is working off of a list. So. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, and that's starting out. You talk about we did, what, 16 or so episodes. The man that is going to join us next month does 16 episodes a week, it seems like. I am thrilled to have him on. I've listened to so many of his. I want to be sharp and prepared when we record with him. But this is Rob Kelly. He has done a commentary for Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959. He's going to come on. We're going to talk about the movie. And I can't wait to hear what he's got to say about it. And we're going to pair that with another movie from 1963 called The Black Zoo. There may be black in the title, but there's nothing dark about 2024. Like you said, there's a bright future ahead for us. As we speak, it's not out yet, but it is being released in December. And since he did the commentary, that means we don't have to do any research, right? Yes, sit back and have Yes, tell us about the movie. Would you recite the the commentary for us? I've seen Horrors of the Black Museum many years ago. It's almost like going to be a first-time viewing. Black Zoo... It is a harder film to find. So as people are are trying to play along at home, it's not streaming anywhere. It is on DVD from Warner Archive Collection, which ah, you can get for about $20, maybe less than $20, depending where you get it. That's going to be the only way to, to check out Black Suit. Well, I guess we can wrap it up. Let's wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays, if that is better. Happy New Year. Thank you so much for listening and participating with us in 2023. Yes. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays and and enjoy the season, however you, you choose to do it. Thank you for being along for the ride this year. Bye, everyone. Take care. And sad eyes passing in windows flimsy And my seat rocking Legs not quite matching Got passport, credit cards A plane that I'm catching Black Sunday falls one day too soon